Hi, welcome to Come and See, a 12-session journey through the Bible. Come and See is recorded with a live class. And now, here's the first session. We're going to be recording the sessions in case anybody misses, uh, because we know some of you uh, uh, have working schedules that sometimes may cause you to miss. So just know that we are recording this as well. So um, anyway, just a quick introduction. Okay, this is... I'm Amos. And I'm Jen. Okay, we're married. Okay, we're Singaporeans. We're Christians. We've been married for 26 years and we have three sons, uh, all in their 20s. Uh, We write and teach about the Holy Bible. Particularly, we focus on sharing the overall message of the Bible from the first book to the last book of the Bible. So in the next three months, we're going to introduce you to the main message of the Bible as well as to the God of the Bible. So just to check, did all of you get access to the notes that we sent? Yep. Okay, great. So you either have a printout or you can follow it on screen as well. Either is fine. Okay, so I, I see Claire as well. Hi, Heng Yang and Claire. <laughs> Thanks. Good to have both of you. Mm. Hi. Hi. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be using notes uh, each week so that you can follow along in the notes. And also, if you want to review them, you have it at easy access. Okay, now before we begin, it's normal practice for us to talk to the God of the Bible in prayer. So we're going to do that now, right before we start the lesson, okay? So I'm going to pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to go through the Bible together. Please allow this time to be helpful in coming to know what the Bible's message is about. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to turn to your session one, okay, about the Bible and creation. So the first page is kind of like an overview of uh, what we're going to be doing in this series. So there's 12 sessions in this series, but we did uh, share with you that we'll probably take up to maybe about 15 sessions to give it a little bit more room so that you can uh, ask questions and breathe as well, okay? But there are six aims of this uh, Bible study. Uh, This first session is about, about the Bible, and also about creation. Now, the very first aim of the study study is to gain a good overview of the main message of the Bible. So, so we want to know what's the main thing that the Bible is talking about, because even though the book is quite thick, there's one main message. The second thing is to, to gain an understanding of the God of the Bible. Who is this God of the Bible? What's he like? And we're going to see that he's a person. He's a person with a personality and a character, there are things that he likes, there are things that he doesn't like. And he has made an effort to make himself known to mankind. The third thing is we're going to learn the Bible's perspective on mankind. You know, what does the Bible say about man? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Why is there something here rather than nothing? You know, why are we going through suffering and the problems in the world today, like evil and, you know, crimes? What happened there? And does the God of the Bible have any solutions to these problems at all? Number four, we're going to understand who Jesus Christ is. Now, Jesus Christ is a central person of the whole Bible. So we're going to look at what his life is like and his death, what his death was like, and then also his resurrection, because the Bible claims that he rose from the dead. Why why should we care and what does that mean for all mankind? So we're going to ask those questions. Number five, we're going to understand what a Christian is and what the Bible says 
about how a Christian is supposed to live. You know, sometimes people say that, hey, you know, some, I know different Christians and some Christians live in totally different ways from others. You know, what does your Bible actually say about how Christians are supposed to live? And so we're going to talk about that. And finally, number six, we're going to see what the Bible says about what's going to happen in the future. Because the Bible has a lot to say about what will happen after this. <clears throat> so that's where we're going to hit. Okay, in these uh, 12 sessions, we're going to go through these six things that we're going to do. Now, we, before we actually go into the message of the Bible, you know, we're going to talk about the Bible itself first, okay? So here's my Bible, okay? It's not too thick, it's in large print because it's easier for me to see, okay? But this is my Bible. But before we look at the main message of the Bible, you know, we want to talk about what is the Bible, so if you turn with me to page two in your notes, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to screen share just for a moment, you know, from the first, basically the content page of the Bible. Okay, so I'm going to screen share it with you. Yep. So this is kind of like the content page of the Bible. Mm. So here you see on screen, this are a list of titles here. And what you'll notice first right off the bat is that the Bible is not a single book. It is actually a whole series of books, kind of like a library of books, if you will. So if you count up the number of titles there, you'll find that there are 66 books in total. And the books are divided in two main divisions. One called the Old Testament there in the top half, and another section called the New Testament in the lower half. We'll explain what those terms mean. So that's kind of the general division of the Bible. And I'm going to examine a little more closely, why is it called the Old Testament and why is it called the New Testament? Now, back up to the notes that you have on page 2. Now, the word testament is just a fancy word. It comes from Latin and it simply means contract. Like how, you know, a mortgage contract or business contract or contract between two people. Exactly like that. Another word that's also used that has the same meaning is covenant. Covenant also means contract. So we see the diagram there on page two, testament, contract, covenant are actually the same words, the same meaning rather. Now it may sound strange, like, huh? The Bible is called the old contract and new contract. What is going on? Well, that's because the God of the Bible is very serious about the promises that he makes to mankind. And so he actually willingly ties himself to mankind through legal agreements. Now, the Bible has details of six major contracts that God made with people. There are a number of other contracts and other contracts between parties, between separate people, but we're going to focus on these six major contracts as we go through our study here. Now, while God doesn't keep on making contract after contract, these six key ones are very interesting because they shape the course of human history. And so the Bible, besides recording the contents of the contract, it also records the behavior of the contract parties. So party A, party B, what did they do? What did they say with regards to the contract? So when God made a contract with mankind, it also records, okay, did God keep the promises of the contract? Did mankind do that? So the Bible is actually a record of how the different parties of the contract behave. Who kept it? Who broke it? Now, why does God <clears throat> even bother to make contracts? Now, that's an interesting 
question. Why does he allow his uh, words, his actions to be recorded and then scrutinized by people like us? We're going to look and scrutinize God's actions and people's actions. Why does he do that? Because, you see, he wants people to, to know him. So, for example, just to give an example, we can, we can get to know a person, let's say a man, by the way that he behaves. And if this man makes a promise and even bothers to write it down, so he makes a, a promise to his son, for example, he writes it down on a piece of paper, he signs his name on it, he puts it on display, he frames it on a wall kind of thing. And everyone who comes by says, wow, you made a promise to your son. How interesting. Let me read what you promised to do to him. Now, when he does that, he's allowing his behavior to be scrutinized. And you can see, is this a man of integrity? Has he kept the promises that he's made? How is he behaving towards the promises he's made? How is his son behaving towards this agreement that he had? So a man who does that allows himself to be examined and be observed in this way. So in the same way, God wants people to do that too. God wants people to learn what he is like, what his character is like, how he behaves. He wants people to see, is, is he a promise-keeping God? Does he deliver on his promises? Or does he just make a promise and then forget about it? Sometimes we as parents, we make a promise to our kids when they're crying, and then two weeks later, we completely forgot what we said. Is God like that? It's a question we want to ask. And so that's one reason why he puts his words down in a contract so that we can observe him and we can learn about his character. Now, a second reason that God's put down these contracts is that a contract defines a relationship. So just as in like two... A marriage contract. A marriage contract, mm. for example. It, it defines that this man vows to be with this woman for the rest of their lives to the exclusion of all other women. So that marriage contract defines the relationship. Or when two companies who have no relationship, want to do business, they come together, they set out terms that they are both agree on, and now they are a partnership. So a contract also actually defines a partnership between two parties. And it makes it very clear what each person or each party is supposed to do. There's no ambiguity. Yeah. And so, and so in with regards to the Bible, it being a contract where God makes contracts with human beings, He wants to tell man, okay, these are my promises and this is what I'm going to do. And then sometimes this is what you're going to do. There's an agreement. And so the Bible is actually full of contracts. And as Amos said, we're going to go through six of them. But if you go to page three, that's why the Bible is divided into two sections. On top, you see that table there. On the left-hand side, it's called the Old Testament, like what we saw in the content page. And the right-hand side, it's called the New Testament. So the Old Testament is called this way because it refers to the earlier contracts, the older contracts that God had made with mankind. Now, there are 39 books in the Old Testament section of the Bible. And then in the New Testament section, that focuses on the new contract that God made with mankind. And that's 27 books in the New Testament. Okay, how are you doing so far? Is it okay? Are we going too fast? Nope. Okay. okay. Feel free anytime to ask questions about the section that we're covering, okay? So just feel free to interrupt us anytime. Some people can, you know, don't mind talking and just unmuting and talking. Feel free to do that. Some people like to type. We're fine with either, okay? Okay, so that's a quick introduction to the Bible. But we want to ask the question, 
how did we get the Bible? I mean, before we even want to study it, we want to know whether it's even worth studying or it's even worth uh, looking at. Is it even reliable or credible? Or is it somebody's just made-up stories? So how did we get the Bible? Okay, the Bible was written by about 40 different writers over a span of 1,500 years. Now, all 66 books of the Bible have a consistent storyline and message. They all agree with each other. And the reason for that is because the creator God of the universe is the one who wrote this Bible. Okay, his name is Yahweh. We'll talk about that a bit more later. But he's the one that inspired different human writers to work with him to write the Bible. So if you take a look at this diagram, the blue diagram in the bottom of page three, I'm just going to focus on the left-hand side first. We're going to talk, talk about the Old Testament. That's covered in the green part, okay? Now, the Old Testament of the Bible, there are 39 books, and it's written by about 30 different men, okay? And the first scrolls of the Old Testament was written around starting from about 1400 BC. That's the first books of the Bible. And then the last scrolls of the Old Testament were written around 430 BC. So you can see a large span of years there. Now, even though it's written between these time periods, the time period that they talk about, what, what period does it cover? It covers uh, all the way from 4000 BC, okay, in history. And then looking forward into the future, it covers right into eternity future. So the Bible does tell us what's going to happen in our future right into the infinity future. Okay, so that's what the Old Testament is. Now, if you turn with me to page four first, we just want to talk a little bit more about this Old Testament. So God spoke to about 30 different writers at different times. And the 30 different writers wrote the Bible in Hebrew. We're going to just show you what Hebrew looks like on screen for a moment, you know, in case some of you have not, may not have seen uh, Hebrew before. <clears throat> Can you see this? <laughs> this is what Hebrew looks like. Now, for most of us, it's like, I can't read a word, <laughs> okay? Mm, it's running right to left. It's like kind of like Chinese, okay? It runs from right to left, okay? Mm. Yeah, so that's Hebrew, the language of the Jews, but some of them also wrote in Aramaic, which is another language, was language of the Babylonians, but it, Aramaic was a common language of that day as mm. well. So we mentioned that there were 39 books in the Old Testament, and each writer of each of those books is known as a prophet. So that's the name that the Bible gives these biblical authors. So this biblical prophet was pointed by God to be his spokesman, to be his writer as well. Now, each prophet was able to write in their own style, in their own choice of vocabulary. So by, by kind of, you know how when you read a letter from a friend, even without the who signed off, after reading a bit, you know, okay, this is my childhood friend or this is my... Uh, boyfriend or girlfriend because you know the style that they write and they have favorite words and that they, they have use. favorite words so each of the prophets were free to use their own writing style and favorite vocabulary but god the god of the bible whose name is yahweh says he guided and inspired each one of them to deliver the message that he wanted them to deliver so when you look across the books the message is consistent now, the people living in the time of the prophet, they recognized 
and acknowledge that the prophets were chosen by God and they were authorized by God to speak and write on his behalf. Yeah, so for instance, if you had a prophet that day writing it, everyone around him knew, oh yes, you have been a prophet chosen by God. And whatever you write, if you're writing about the today, uh, what is happening today, you know, they knew, they could verify, yeah, I'm living during your time as well. So everyone at that time knew who the prophets were, were and who God chose. Later on in a later lesson, we will show you that God also taught the people how to authenticate who is the true prophet that comes from him and who may just be pretending. So God actually put in his Bible a test. Okay, He told the people, here's how you can test whether a person is a real prophet or not. Mm. But why we're bringing this up is because we want to have some confidence that what we read in the Bible is actually something that God's prophets actually wrote. And so, yes, the people who lived around that time said, yeah, I verify that this is the case. Mm. Now, there's some pictures there in the middle of page four, but if you look at the screen here, you see that I have a miniature version of a, one of the scrolls uh, or a copy, but it's a miniature copy of a biblical scroll. So if we look like that, it has two spindles and it has a cover for it. So when you lift off the cover, which I will Carefully, attempt without to do, breaking. <laughs> you get this, it looks like this. And then, unlike our books, you can actually unroll either left or right. And you can see the columns of text there. And as we mentioned, the text runs right uh, to left. And you can see how tight it is. So this is how I scroll. So if you want to read a later chapter, you got to unroll one side and roll up the other to get to the <laughs> section that you wanted. So that's how a biblical scroll looks like. And they're all very big. So unlike the books that we can hold in our hand now and then we flip our pages, you have to carefully roll the scroll. Mm. So if you take a look at the pictures here. So here in the picture there, you'll see a much larger version, actual size scroll that they would have. And remember how we said there were 39 books of the Bible? Well, the different books were on different scrolls. And so if you look at the right-hand picture, you see what is known as a uh, scroll box. The, the, the Jewish people call it a Torah box. We'll explain what that word means in a moment. And this box or cupboard is known by the Hebrew word of an ark. Ark simply means a container. So if you look at it carefully, you see there are six compartments and the scrolls are placed in, in a kind of a vertical way. And so, because the different scrolls are, are just kind of placed in the cupboard, you see that the, the order of the books, which came first, which came second, is not such a great importance to them because they're on individual scrolls. Now, these scrolls, they are made of papyrus and they didn't last forever. So the papyrus is a plant. Okay, it's a plant and then you press it together and you write. But because they're a plant, they disintegrate. So the original scrolls that the prophets wrote on don't last forever. So it's very important that copies were made. So throughout uh, history, accurate copies were, were continually being made. Now, not just anybody can make these copies. Okay, especially trained scribes would, uh, would make them. Now, how careful were they in making them? Because again, one thing that we want to know, were they careful or did they introduce their own ideas and thoughts or they write nonsense and all that? So if you turn with me to page 5, we want to show you the practice of a group of scribes called the Masorets. 
Okay, they had many safeguards. So take a look at the diagram on top of page 5. There are a lot of safeguards to make sure that they were copying accurately. So firstly, that they, they always wrote 30 letters wide, their scroll, and 48 to 60 lines down. Mm, so each section, like what I have shown you, so each column there is 30 letters across. And depending on how wide the scroll is, is uh, how many lines again? 48 to 60 lines down. It's always go. standard like this. And then to make sure that they copy correctly, a few key things were done. Now, when we say 30 letters wide, right? You know, what, what they would do also is that they would take a thread and put in between all the letters so that their letters don't join to each other. The spacing okay, is very... So that every letter is very clear. And then what they would do, they would count the total number of words in this particular section, okay, so they know the total number. Which word is the middle word, okay? And then which is the middle letter? And so after they finish copying one, they will double check and make sure that the total number of words is correct, middle word is correct, middle letter is correct. And the scribe who writes it cannot just write quickly. Now you cannot write from memory. You have to speak the letter out loud and then you will write it. Oftentimes, there are two of them. One person would speak it, then the writer would repeat it, and then he would write it, and then he would make sure that it's accurate. So it's actually a very long process. Now, if there were any mistakes at all, they would take that copy and they would store it in a hiding place. So a special name called Geniza. Basically, it's in their Jewish place of worship called synagogue, or sometimes they stored it in a cemetery. Why? Because it's not accurate to use, but they feel that it's a word of God. They don't want to throw it away. But nevertheless, it contains errors. They don't want to use it. So they hide it away. And so this, this way, the Jews ensured that over time, you know, all the scripture copies were always as accurate as it could be. Mm. Now, how accurate are they? Okay, now, here, here's how we can see how accurate they are. So look at the bottom picture there on the left-hand side on page 5. So in 1946, there were near the area of the Dead Sea, along the, the sides, along the coast of the Dead Sea, are these series of caves, very dry desert caves. So you can see what they kind of look like there. And a shepherd boy, he was taking care of his uh, goats. And what happened was, his goats had kind of climbed into this hole up on the cliff there, on the side there. And so he was trying to get their attention, so he threw rocks to try and get them to come down. And one of the rocks entered a little doorway or hole, and he heard the sound of pottery breaking. And so that, that's... What happened? What happened there? So he climbed in, and what he found was these tall clay cylinders. And the one that he had broken, he looked in, he found that they were scrolls like this, without the wooden spindles, rolled up and placed inside the clay cylinders and then sealed with wax, a whole series of them. And so when he reported his find, these archaeologists came to take a look. And in multiple caves, they found multiple clay jars with many scrolls. It's kind of like a storage area of a library. So they have been called the Qumran Caves after the area where they were. And archaeologists looking at how old these uh, scrolls were dated them to about the year 
100 BC. So here on the picture there, you can see on the right, one of the scrolls they found. This is the scroll of the Psalms, one of the books of the Bible. Now, if you turn with us to the next page, page 6, you know, we want to share with you that even though this event happened in 1946, it sent a lot of excitement all across the world. Why? Because take a look at this diagram on top of page 6. On the right-hand side is something called the Masoretic Text. So earlier on, we mentioned to you the group of scribes called the Masorets. So they were the ones making these copies. So they, they had a copy of the Old Testament and the latest, the earliest, uh, earliest surviving Old Testament copy was dated to around AD 900. Okay, and up until 1946, this was the oldest surviving Old Testament copy. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, so you take a look on the left-hand side, so those that's a picture of the Kleja. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they was, they were, it was dated to about 100 BC. Now that is 1,000 years earlier than 8900, okay, 1,000 years earlier so you can imagine it's like we find today you know something that was done in the year 1023 i mean we are 19 we, sorry sorry 1000 1023 right? yeah. we're 2023 now right so 1000 so if we found something like wow that's pretty old so when they found the dead sea scrolls that now became the oldest surviving manuscript but when they compared the two thousand years apart one thousand years apart they realized there's no virtually no difference. There's virtually no difference, which means that the scribes who copied it did a very good job in copying it. So it's mm. very, very accurate. In maintaining accurate copies. Now, there was some variation in the punctuation and spelling of names, but everything else was accurate. So why are we bringing this up? Because we want to have confidence before we spend any time in the Bible at all, that it's the original, the words that we have in the Bible are the original that the writers, the prophets actually wrote. So we see that, you know, all throughout history, human history, the Jews have always treated the scripture as the very words of the creator God of the world, uh, that is himself. They have never questioned that this is the words of God. So this very same content, this very same content that the prophets wrote in Hebrew and all that, and now when we are we are working with a translation, you know, the same content that Christians have in our Old Testament portion of the Bible. So of course our our Bible is now in a book format, you know, it's not in a scroll format. So if you turn with me to page seven, on the left hand side is the Holy Bible, the Bible that Christians use. It's called the Old Testament and there are 39 books and it's broken up into three main categories history wisdom and then the prophets so for instance the history section the very first book of the bible is called genesis and it goes on down to number 17 esther and then the wisdom books are like uh, it's like the literature section songs and and uh, wise sayings and then the prophets, what the prophets wrote about, you see number 23 to number 39. Now, what the Christians have in their Old Testament is exactly the same as what the Jews have in their entire scriptures. So on the right-hand side, now the Jewish scriptures has a special name called the Tanakh. Okay, now the way, the, the, how they got this name is they took the 
acronym. First okay, letter. the first letter of the different, the three different sections of their scriptures. So the first one is called Torah, that's the law. The second one is Navim, those are the prophets, and the third one is Ketuvim, that's the writings. So they took the first letters of each T, N, and K, and then they pronounce it as Tanakh. Okay, but the you might notice that on the Old Testament side. We have 39 books. On the uh, Jewish scripture sites, you have 24. So you might wonder, eh, how come it's different? That's the difference is, just take a look at, for instance, number 8 on the Tanang site. So you see the book of Samuel, number first book and second book of Samuel. So they treated the book of Samuel as one book, first and second. But the Christians on the left-hand side, take a look at number 9 and number 10. The Christians broke up the first book of Samuel and called it one book, and the second book of Samuel, they call it another book. So it's exactly the same. The only thing is how they just split it. Okay, does it make sense? Okay, any questions on this point? No? Nope? Doing okay? <laughs> All right, so what we're trying to show is that the, the Jewish scriptures is exactly the same as our Christians' Old Testament uh, books. Okay, so now, the Jews have never doubted that these are Yahweh's words, so Christians also trust that these are the very words of God. So now, that is an introduction to the Old Testament. So before we move into the New Testament, just want to check, any questions about the Old Testament? Nope? Okay, then, we, then we'll talk a little bit more about the New Testament. So we turn to page 8. And now we'll focus on the right-hand side of the diagram there. Mm, so looking at the text in kind of the pink, pink or salmon colored there. So now the New Testament, let's see when it was written. So you can see that the first scrolls of the New Testament were written roughly in the year AD 40. So that's where we are looking at now. And then the last book was written in the year 95. So it's a very short span of time there, about 50 years and all of it was written. Now, what was the topics covered in the New Testament? It starts with covering historical events from around the time of 4 BC, and it gives us information on what happened during that time period. And it also talks about the far future, right out into eternity future as well. So that's kind of when, when the Old Testament was written and what it covers. So while the Old Testament had about 30 writers, the New Testament had about 10 writers, and we believe that they're all Jewish. Now, earlier we've shown you on screen what Hebrew looked like. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic, which is the language of the Babylonians. So about 1.2% of it is in Aramaic. But the New Testament is almost entirely in Greek, because Greek, at the time, if you look at the timeline, 4 BC onwards, it was a language of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was in power, and they had made Greek the, the like common language that people across different regions, cities, nations, all spoke that. So when the New Testament writers wrote, they used the common language of Greek as well. So the Greek is still being used today. If you visited Greece and all that, you can see their writing. Mm. Yeah. So on page 9 now, we see a list of New Testament books. Now, there's a few books on the left-hand side there about the history of the early Christians there. 
And so in particular, the first four books there are known by the authors who wrote them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now these four books have a particular name. They're called the Gospels. So the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark. Now the Gospel is an old English word. It actually means God's spell, which literally translates to, or into modern English as good news. The good news. So that's what the word gospel means. So these four gospels are four different eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ and his time on earth. So they each wrote about the things that Jesus said and did from people, from their own memories or from people that they interview who were alive at the time. So we'll learn more about who Jesus is and what he did when we get to that part of the Bible. Then the number, book number five is called the Book of Acts. And together, the five of them form the history portion of the early church. So that's the first five books there. The Gospel of Mark in particular, the book number two, is the earliest gospel account, written approximately 20 years after the events of Jesus' life. So this is around 55, the year 55, AD 55. Now, when they were writing, the people who had been witnesses, who had been involved, who saw these things happen, they were still very much alive. So they could easily say, hey, you, you missed out this, or that's inaccurate, that's not what happened, that kind of thing. So the people who were alive, who had witnessed these events, were still alive when the Gospels were written. And so when they were being written, they're also being shared and passed around. And the people who were living them, yep, yep, yeah, this is accurate. I can vouch for it. I can verify it. Yeah, so that's how we also know that, you know, they, they didn't just write it and then nobody was there. They didn't mm. make things up. They didn't imagine it. They didn't dream it up. So once they wrote it, there are other people who read it and said, yeah, I can verify. This is true. Mm. Then the middle section there, <clears throat> books number 6 to 26, they're actually letters, or the fancy word is epistles. But basically they are letters, either addressed to a group of people, or addressed to an individual, or addressed to someone in a particular city, that kind of thing. So that's a whole list of letters there you see. And the last book there is known as Revelation. That's where God gives information about the future and what to expect. It's very similar. It's very unlike the other letters of the New Testament, but it is similar to some of the Old Testament books where God, back in the past, also talks about the far future and what that would be like. And so these letters were delivered to particular individuals or to particular groups of people, and they read it. And then other people know, hey, what did you get? What did you get from God's letter writers? We also want to know the information. So what happened was, very soon after that, they started making copies as well, so that Christians in other cities could also get the same information. So it's not like us run down, photocopy, and then we're done. <laughs> they had to again sit down and then write out letter by letter, word by word, onto a new sheet of papyrus, and then send it off to this other group who was waiting to receive a copy of the letter as well. Yeah, so, so just to give you an example, if you take a look at number six there, Romans. So this was a letter written to the church in Rome. Okay, so it's titled Romans. So after the Romans had read the letter that was addressed to them, you know, another church would say, we want to have your letter. 
So the church would copy out, again, very, very carefully, the letter that was written to the Romans, and then they would keep a copy for themselves. Or keep and, the original. Or they might keep the original. And so over time, many churches had their own you know, hand-copied versions so that many copies were going around of the different letters. Mm. Now, why this is interesting for us and important for us to know, again, is that do, do we have what they originally had? Or do we have in our hands now the originals? And it is true, we do. Okay, what we want to show you is on page 10. Take a look at the diagram in the middle of the page. The number of manuscript copies of the New Testament that are available. Okay, so for instance, today, there are 5,800 manuscript copies of the New Testament, the surviving handwritten manuscripts. Now, they're all written in Greek. Now, that's a lot. Okay, the earliest copies are dated between AD 90 and the year 150. So very, very early. Okay, there are 5,800 copies. Mm. Now, if we wonder, is it a normal habit or practice for everyone then to just copy and copy different kinds of literature, works and all that? Well, yes and no, not quite. So if you were to compare with other works of that time... Mm. So if you see that graph there, below the New Testament copies, you see these are the very famous uh, writers in Greek around the same era. So number one, number one, the first guy there is named, named by the guy by the name of Homer. You may find his name familiar. He wrote the book called Iliad, which is about the Trojan War. So very famous war there. And there are about 1,800 manuscript copies of his works that survive to today. So there are copies found in libraries and museums. The second one you want to look at is Caesar in the middle there. Now, this is Julius Caesar, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with him. Some of you may have studied the play Julius Caesar while in school. Well, he's a famous Roman general, and he wrote many volumes about the wars that he fought. Today, there are only 10 surviving manuscript copies of his writings that survived. So just 10. Just, just 10 is all we have. The one name under his is Herodotus. Herodotus is famous because he is called the father of history in that the way that he researched, the way that he interviewed and investigated, and then what, how he wrote it up kind of sets the format for what we call history books today. You know, the kind of documentaries that we watch and the history books that we read, the way that it's written, Herodotus pioneered that style. So they like to call him the father of history. Now, of the books that he wrote, we only have eight surviving manuscript copies. And then finally, Plato, also very famous. He's, he's like the father of Western philosophy, his way of thinking. Only seven manuscript copies of his writings survive. So you can see the chart there. You see the contrast there. Now, here's what's interesting. We, or rather scholars, do not doubt that we know what Plato said. We do not doubt, we know what Herodotus wrote, we know what Caesar wrote, the wars that he fought, just based on these surviving manuscripts. So scholars are pretty confident, high degree of certainty. In fact, some of our understanding of Roman history from that period comes from the writings of these men. And you can, you can see 
10 copies, 8 and 7. So in contrast then, we have about 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. So as Jen mentioned, some of them are complete New Testament. That means if you just glance back on page 9, complete meaning all these 27 books and letters are available. There's full sets. And then some of the copies are just one book. Some of the copies are just one page. Some of them are even like a little slip of paper that has been unearthed in an archaeological find. So together, if you add up all the different uh, types of copies we have, 5,800. So there's a wealth. There's a wealth of copies that we can look at. That's in Greek. Now, in addition, soon after the original Greek copies were made, people who spoke other languages also wanted a copy for themselves. But they didn't read Greek, so they had it translated. So today, we also have about 20,000 New Testament manuscripts in other languages like Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and Arabic as well. So that's another wealth of manuscripts coming from around the same time of uh, when the New Testament itself was being written, or rather soon after that. So in other words, we have a great many copies from that era that we can look at and compare, and we can see what is the original wording. So you can actually use that. So we have got very high confidence that what we have today uh, is accurate to the original text. Okay, so that's one point you wanted to share about the New Testament. But there's another point on page 11 mm. you want to share. Now look at the second diagram or timeline here. We're looking now at the gap, time gap between when the original was written and when was the earliest surviving copy that we have. So you understand? So when was the original written and when is the earliest copy, the one that's closest to it in terms of time. So for the New Testament, the gap between when the original writer first wrote and the oldest copy we have is 25 years. It's very short. It's very short. <laughs> that means that the original copy survived quite a long time and mm. then get a copy made. Now, let's have some scale here. So in comparison, for example, Homer, when he wrote his Iliad, his original, the oldest surviving copy that we have is 400 years after he wrote. So that's four century time gap. And then Herodotus, whom we call the father of history, when he wrote his manuscript, the oldest surviving copy we have is 1,400 years later. And then Plato, the oldest surviving copy was 1,200 years after he wrote. So imagine, now's the year 2023. That means that Plato would have originally written in our AD 823. So he wrote 823, the earliest copy is 2023. So we just say that to show that it's a very, very long time. Mm. So yeah. this tells us something interesting, that our oldest surviving New Testament copies were produced about 25 years after the original. So that gives us high confidence, or rather greater confidence, that what we have is what was originally written. In the same way, again, as, as we mentioned, we have confidence that we have what Herodotus actually wrote. But our oldest copy 
is a thousand foreign years after he first wrote. Okay, we say all that as an introduction to the Bible, just so we have some confidence that we have the original words and, you know, they were copied and passed down correctly. Any questions on this about the Old Testament and New Testament that we've shared at this point? Still doing okay? <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Now, just a note about translation. So we originally said that the original languages that the Bible was written in is in Hebrew for the Old Testament and a little bit of Aramaic and also Greek. But you know, I don't read Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. And I think that most of us in this room here don't. Okay, so what we are reading it in is in English, right? So the Bible has been translated to 700 languages and then portions of it has been translated to 3,400 over languages. So if you turn with me to page 12. So now just take a look at this uh, take, uh, graph on top. So the living languages in the year 2020, there are about 7,360 living languages. Living means that there are people who speak. Still use it. <laughs> who speak those languages. Okay, and then, and then uh, portions of the Bible have been translated into 3,000. 415 of it. The New Testament has been translated into 1,551 and the entire Bible, so all, both Old and New Testament has been translated into 704. Okay, so we, it has been translated into many different languages. Now, just English itself, right? If, uh, if you take a look at an English Bible, you might notice that there are many different versions of the Bible as well. There's different translations of the Bible. So some people wonder, why? Why does there need to be so many uh, translations? I mean, just to give an example, in English alone, there are about 60 different versions. So that's a lot for just one <laughs> language. language. Why is that? Okay, there's, a, there, there's two reasons. See, when you translate something... Okay, when you translate something, you have to make decisions of are you going to translate word for word or are you going to translate the meaning? Okay, I'm going to give you two different examples here because I think not every one of us speak Chinese. Okay, the first example we're going to give you is a Chinese word. Okay, so if you know Chinese, some hope some of you do, the phrase chi ku. Okay, chi ku. Do you yeah. know what it means? So, okay. okay, yeah, I know, I know some of you. Know. I will use another non-Chinese uh, example later, but mm. finish it on first. So, chiku, if you translate, there's two words, right? If you translate literally, it means it literally is eat bitter. Eat bitter. You know, eat bitter. And Mitra, when you think, well, what does, what does, that, it what does mean? that even mean? <laughs> now, is eat bitter a fair translation? Well, it is. If you're translating it character by character, mm. but the meaning is a little lost. Another way we can translate chiku is say endure hardship. Okay, Mitra, do you understand endure hardship? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You do, right? So ah, so now we have translated, we've brought across the meaning, but we've left behind the literal words that eat bitter. We kind of left it uh, behind. So, so so you see those are two different styles of translating so if you see someone translate a, a sentence and this often happens if you try google translate sometimes google will give you the literally like what i, I see the translation <laughs> but i don't know what you're talking about still until a native speaker meets say oh 
Eat, eat bitter means endure hardship. So now we can see there's two translations coming out of that. So just one simple word in Chinese or two words in characters in Chinese can be translated in two different ways. So we, we give that as an example because different translators have different approaches. Some of them prefer to translate the entire thought. Some of them will translate word by word for word. To give you another more local example, okay, this one is something that you're all familiar with. The word shiok, right? Oh, so shiok! If I'm eating a bowl of laksa or whatever, so shiok! Okay, or if I take a cold shower on a very hot day, so shiok. Now, how would you translate that to a non-Singaporean? If we have five different people translated, you may have five different translations. And it could be that all five are accurate to a degree. Accurate to a degree. You see? Yeah, so the reason why there's so many English translations is because of the type of you know translation philosophy that each translator have. It doesn't mean that one of them is wrong and one of them is right. It's just a different approach. So for those people who know more than one language, I think you can appreciate better you know, the challenges in translating. That's one uh, 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 reason. That's one reason why there are different translations of the English Bible. But there's a second reason. If you take a look at the bottom of page 12, we give you an example. Okay, so here's one verse, uh, one passage of the Bible. Mm. This is from the book of John on the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Verse 16. Later on, we'll explain how this numbering system uh, works. Now, if you look, there are three different English translations of this uh, sentence from the Bible. It's from the Greek, translated into English. Now, I'll just read the leftmost one first. This one is known as the King James Version. And it reads like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So if any of you have studied Shakespeare, kind of, you can see the Shakespearean English showing up here. So nothing wrong with this translation, but you can see there's a, what we call a higher level. In fact, if you look at the last row there, we would say it's a grade 12 or a JC2 kind of level, 18-year-old. An 18-year-old person, English speaker, would understand this. But you can see the words, Only begotten son, whosoever believer. That's quite high-level English there. So now in the middle one is another version called the English Standard Version. Again, translating the same sentence, it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, that's a little easier for me anyway. <laughs> and that's about a 16-year-old's level of English. And then on the right-hand side, it's something even simpler. It's called the New Living Translation. Again, same sentence from the Greek. It now says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Is it clearer? <laughs> So this, not to insult anyone here, I, I like this translation. Okay? So my mind obviously at a 12-year-old level. Because that's how the new English translation decide to do it. This is, let's use simpler vocabulary to do this so that it's easier to read for many people. So that's also another reason why there are many different English translations. It's what level are they writing for? Okay? Mm. Any questions on that? 
Now, okay, so now, just for simplicity and because we do like the New Living Translation, in the rest of the series, we're, we're going to use the New Living Translation which is on the rightmost side. Okay, we find it easiest to uh, work with. Okay, and I think modern, modern English speakers like it very well as well because not too many of us like Shakespeare, okay? But that's the reason why you may go to a bookstore and you may see many different English translations. They don't disagree with each other, okay? It's just that these are the two different dynamics going on there. So if you want to choose to get a Bible, for instance, most of the Bibles are fine. Just note that you may prefer a different reading level, and mm. that's what you want to choose. Okay, so th that's kind of like the introduction to the Bible. Now, for those of you who may want to find out more about the Bible itself, later on on page 34, you know, we'll give you a few book recommendations that you can read more, or if you have, more, uh, if you have questions that pop, pop to your head later about the Bible, you can also, well, you can do two things. We are always available. You can always ask us. You don't need to limit your interaction with us to the class. You can always message us. You know, you have our phone numbers as well as our uh, email. You can contact us. You can call us out for coffee. We will happily sit down with you. But just feel free, okay? Or you can also stay back after class every week and say, hey, I got more questions. So that is perfectly fine. We're always available to you. But uh, if you do want to read more, you can turn to yeah, page 34 for those references. Okay, now we, we want to just say a little bit more about um, the Bible first, but the Bible really gives us a good insight into Yahweh. Now that's the name of the creator God of the universe and the God of the Bible. Okay, now sometimes you may be wondering, okay, you know, the Bible that, like for instance, I have, I can hold it in my hand. And we just went through, it's written by, written by 40 different men over 1,500 years. How is it possible that there's one message? How is it consistent? You know, if you've ever been in any project group, you know that even if just four different people writing the same project, you know, you won't get four people, you know, agreeing totally on every single point. You know, and so, and so you're wondering, how did 40 different men who lived over a span of 1,500 years of different uh, professions and careers, you know, some of them were farmers, some of them are kings. How did they end up writing the same thoughts? It's because Yahweh, the God of the Bible, claims to be the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate author of the Bible. Now, he worked with the different ones of the 40 men so that the words in the Bible are his words. So you will often see that when Christians speak, they will say that, oh, these are God's words. But they might also say, oh, this is the word of and then they name a certain Bible writer, words of Paul or word of Moses or something like that, because it's interchangeable, because God worked with the human to write down exactly what he wanted uh, uh, to uh, be right. put down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what, one thing we're going to see about the Bible is that God describes himself as a person. The God of the Bible is not a force like gravity or electricity. He's not a force. He's not impersonal. Actually, he's incredibly personal. He has a personality, he has a character. The Bible describes him as a spirit, so he doesn't have physical flesh, so to speak, like we have. But he's able to think, speak, communicate, feel, act. You know, and he is the one ultimately responsible for creating everything else on earth. So 
before we start reading the actual text of the Bible, there's one more thing we want to do. We want to see how to navigate the Bible. Okay, so for some of you who may not be familiar with the Bible at all, if you turn to page 14, you know, this being on Zoom, we can't, you know, bend over and show you the actual Bible. So we kind of printed it out on the middle of page 14. So for instance, this book of the Bible is called Second Peter because this is the second letter that Peter wrote that was uh, included into the Bible. And you see that big letter there, number one. So we would call that the chapter. And then you see the small letter there circled in red. We, small so, sorry, small number. We call that the verse. So for instance, if we want to say uh, a, a, a reference, it's kind of like an address in the Bible. We might say, you know, in this case, the book of Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 1, or something like that. Okay, that's kind of how we would say it. So for instance, if take a look at the bottom uh, words. So the book first is written out like this. So Second Peter, we always write the book first, and then by the chapter, so that's number 1, and then by the verse, and it's separated by a colon. Okay, so when we read it out, we might say Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 20, or we might say Second Peter 1, 20. So it either works. So that's how we kind of navigate the Bible. Now, when the Bible was first written, right, there wasn't these numbers, <laughs> okay? In Hebrew and in Greek, there weren't these numbers. But later on, uh, Christians put it in because it's easier to navigate the Bible and to say, hey, I'd like you to turn to, you know, this part of the Bible and so on and so forth. So for instance, if we were to take a look at on page 15 at this particular verse, 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, this is what it says. Mm, so let me read this out for all of us here. It says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So what we see here is, I just read out the two sentences that were there. But you notice that I didn't read out the little numbers there, the 20 and the 21, because those are the addresses. Those are just a reference to help us find that particular sentence. So when you read the Bible, you don't have to read all the numbers. You just skip over that. It's just, it's just a help to, for us to navigate to the correct part that we want to discuss. So what this verse itself is saying, is saying that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. So in other words, this writer here is saying, these thoughts, they did not come, they did not originate in the mind of the human writer. Rather, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the names of God here. And they spoke from God. So God told them the thoughts. And then they wrote down what God wanted to say. So that's what these two verses are saying. Now, this book of Second Peter actually comes near the end of the Bible. So we're going to come back to it much later. But just want to, we just want to read out those verses to kind of show you what we've been saying, that God used human authors, but ultimately he's claiming to be the final author of all the words that you see in the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to go start at the beginning and then take a look at what he says sequentially or chronologically. Okay, so that's the end of the first part on introducing uh, the Bible. Is everyone doing okay? 
Okay, just to share with you, I know our classes are long, it's two hours, but it's because we're very uh, focused on trying to get you from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. And that's an, another reason why we give you quite detailed notes. Okay, so if you are speaking too fast, you always have something to refer to. But because it's a two-hour class, at any point in time you want to stand up and stretch, you know, do jumping jacks, please go ahead. You know, we do we do enjoy when you keep your cameras on so we can also read body language, like you're going to, already, and we're like, okay, okay. You know, uh, we don't normally give breaks because it's very hard to bring people back from breaks, okay? So, uh, but feel free, as you can tell, Amos and I are very casual, okay? So we're not scary people normally. <laughs> so uh, just feel free to just uh, let us know if you have a question or thoughts. Now, one thing that we want to point out is uh, right now we're going to start reading straight from the Bible, but because it's a Zoom class, we've printed out chunks of the Bible in your notes as well, just to make it easier. All right? But if you do have access to a Bible, you can also look at your Bible uh, after that as well. I mean, it's, it's the same content, mm -hmm. just it, it depends on the translation that you have. But what we're trying to do is we're going to go through as uh, comprehensively as we can, the main message of the Bible. So we're going to give you the breath. Okay, we're not necessarily going to go down deep into every single topic. But what we hope to get through uh, at the end of the series is the six aims and purposes, okay, that you know what the main message of the Bible is, who God is, who Jesus is, what a Christian is, and what the Bible says about the future. Now, what you do with this information is entirely up to you, Okay. Each of us has to make up our own choice of what we do with that. So we're not gonna there's no pressure for you to do anything with the with one way or the other. What you do with the information is entirely up to you. Amos and I are here to just explain it. To just explain it so you can uh, ex understand clearly who is this God and what is he saying. Whether you accept or reject what he's saying, that's fine. It's entirely up to you. So there's no pressure. Okay, just so you know that. Okay, so if you turn to page 16, here's where we're headed. We want to give you an overview of the 12 uh, lessons. So here's a timeline of biblical events that the Bible talks about from creation, the first uh, event, all the way to final judgment. That's the last event. So in this timeline here, you see the names of the different events that we're going to cover with you. So for instance, if you just follow on the left-hand side, creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham. Now, these words may not mean anything to you right now, but we, we will be going through all of it. Now, these, these words cover three things. History, our history, okay? Our present, current day, as well as the future. Now, what are the topics we're going to cover? So, for instance, number one, we're going to start right after this to talk about how the world came to be and why is there something here now rather than nothing okay what happened next week we're going to talk about why is there why there is evil in the world and then we'll move on to number three god judged the evil world and then number four god's plan to reach the world and then number five we'll talk about god revealed his standards and then number six god taught about himself number seven how god's people failed Number eight, God's rescue plan. Number nine, the Savior's work. And then number one to number nine, all is history. Okay, everything from number one to number nine is in our past already. And in lesson 10, we're going to talk about the present age because the Bible actually talks 
a lot about our present age, the time where you and I are living. So why, why is the time we're living like this? You know, what are we seeing? And then lesson 11 is how the world ends. Okay, so the Bible does give us very uh, detailed, you know, uh, future information. And then number 12 is God's invitation. So, so that's how the 12 lessons will go. Okay, so um, what, what we're going to do is, we're gonna, as we read the Bible, you will see that the Bible is not so difficult to understand. Okay, because God wrote it in such a way that if you were to read a newspaper, you read an account, it's similar to that because most of it is history. So most of it is reading what happened. What happened here? What happened there? What did God do? What did people do? Okay, does that make sense? Okay? Chris, are you all right? <laughs> okay, great. Okay, now we're going to start at the very first book of the Bible. And the very first book of the Bible is called Genesis, which, which means origins. In the Greek, uh, it means origins. Now, if you turn with me to page 17, okay, so here if you take a look, Whenever we have this big Bible sign, it means that you can look at your Bible as well. You know, it's a, you will find the same content, okay? But here, what we're going to do, as we, what we said, we printed out portions of the Bible here, so it's far easier to refer to. We're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Okay, we're going to read it all together first, and then we're going to share some comments on that. Hmm. So let me just read it for us. Verse 1 there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated, separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called the space sky. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, Let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land, and the waters seas. And God saw it was good. Then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. Then seeds would then would produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees of seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, 
the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each one to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was, very, it was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Okay, so that's how the Bible starts. And some things that we want to notice in this passage is that God created just by speaking. Now, before this creation event, only God existed. There was no time, there was no space, there was no universe, there was no matter, there was no energy. Only God existed. You know, and then the Bible presents him and then he created everything that existed. Now, God could have chosen multiple ways of creating, but he chose to create by speaking. You notice, just by speaking, he created things. He didn't need materials, he didn't need tools, but he values language. Language is very important to him. So he chose language of communication to speak it out. And his creative work was very sudden. In six days, he finished creating everything. 
So God of the God of the Bible, He's very powerful. So we call it all powerful. But when we went through how He created, it's fascinating to note that He's also incredibly organized and orderly. So if you turn to page nineteen, take a look at this six-day pattern. Now, for those of us who play computer games <laughs> and you build things, you notice that we always have to build the environment first before we introduce, you know, uh, the people or the animals. Or we build the environment and we decorate it up very nicely first. You know, God did something similar in his six-day pattern of creation. Because if you take a look on the left-hand side, in the first three days, he created the environment <laughs> So the first day, he created the domain of light and darkness. Second day, he created sea and the atmosphere, the air. And then the third day, he created land. Only after he created all this, then the second set of three days, he created the occupants for this space or for this environment. So for instance, on the fourth day, he created the sun for the day, and then he created moon and stars for the night. So he filled the domain of light and darkness. And on the fifth day, he created fish for the sea, and then birds to fill the atmosphere. And then on the sixth day, he created animals for the land, and also he created man, mankind, to rule the fish, birds, and animals. So from just from this, we see that, oh, the God of the Bible is very organized. He's not a chaotic genius. He's not messy, but, you know, very, very good. No, no, he's very, very orderly. Now, after observing these things, you see how he carefully created. The one question that comes to our mind is, why? What was his purpose of creating? I mean, if God himself had existed by himself happily all the time, what would cause him to create something at all. Why is this universe here? You know, for you can imagine for a, a husband and wife who is expecting their first child, you know, what would they do? They're, they're very excited. Oftentimes, they would say, okay, let's set aside this space in the house for the baby. You know, they'll go get a crib. They'll go decorate a crib with all kinds of f fancy things, you know, and fun stuff. They would buy diapers and all that so that everything is ready for the baby, you know, before the baby actually comes. In a similar way, this is what God has done as well. He's preparing everything for his most important creation. And his most important creation is humankind, mankind. Okay, now I see that question and we're going to just uh, cover that shortly, but we're going to cover this first. So what did God do? Just now we read until Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 3. Now we're just going to go on to see what happened next. Mm -hmm. So if you turn with me to page 20. We're going to read some more of the scripture. So earlier we saw a quick summary of the creation of the man and the woman. So if you just turn back with us on uh, page 18. If you look there at the little superscript number 26, verse 26, as we say, you see that then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
So that's just two verses there where we give an information of how he made the first man and the woman. So now, if we turn over now to page 20, you know how in newspaper articles, you read, like you read the headline. The headline basically tells you what happened in the, about five or six words. The summary. <laughs> the summary. Then the first sentence or first paragraph, again, gives you a very tight summary of the key uh, facts of the event. Like an executive summary. Like an executive summary. Mm -hmm. And then the following paragraphs flesh out the details. So in a very similar way now, this second chapter of Genesis gives us the finer details of exactly how did God create the man and the woman. So let me read this for us. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 and onwards. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the, heaven, made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic raisin and awning stone are also found there. The second branch, called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Asher. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed a man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out of the man took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone for my bone, and flesh for my flesh. She will be called woman, because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Okay, now here's a question that we have. 
Are the six days meant to be taken literally? Yes. So what we're going to notice about God, the God of the Bible, is that language is very important to Him. Words are very important to Him. Every word has an assigned meaning. And as we go down uh, the scriptures, I mean the Bible, you're going to see that He defines words by meanings that He Himself gives in the Bible itself. So for instance, when He talks about days, He says that, Six days, and later on we'll see, you know, he worked six days to create the world, and then he rested one day. So that's why, you know, we have a seven-day work week now. So each word is very important, and he defines them. He also defines concepts, okay? Like when he talks about love, when you talk about faith, when you talk about trust, God actually defines it in the Bible. But here's one thing I want to point out. In this six days of creation, God created a mature earth. Now, how do we know that in this passage that we just read? You know, let's take a look at um, let's take a look at verse fifteen. Okay, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. You know, when God created mankind on the sixth day. Okay, so let's take a look at verse seven. Okay, on top. So then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and a man became a living person. Now, God did not create this first man as a baby. You know, he did not. He created him as a fully grown man. How do we know that he's a fully grown man? Because he gave him instructions right after that, you know, in language that the man could understand. So take a look at verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in a garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So already on day six of creation, God told this man, watch over it. And then God could also give him instructions. You can eat of every tree here, but be warned, no need of that one. Now, here comes the famous question that people like to ask. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> you know, in the Bible, God didn't create the egg first. God created the chicken first. You know, when we read about uh, these things, we saw that, we see that God created a mature earth. Now, how do we know that even from this passage? You know, take a look at verse 9. Okay, the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. Trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we know that these two trees were already bearing fruit because he told the first man, you can eat of the fruit anywhere here except for the fruit of this one tree. So when God created in this first six days, he created a mature earth so that, for instance, if we could jump back in time with our smartphones, right, and we were to film the place, we would see a very, very old-looking earth. The trees are these huge trees. It looks as if it's been there for a long time. You know, and in fact, we were, if we were to interview the first man, hey, how old are you? You know, he'd probably say, just a few hours old. Even though he looks like a fully grown man, maybe of 20 or 30 or 40 years old. But that's how the Bible describes it. God did not create an immature baby earth. Does that help uh, the question? Do we answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Now, we want to make more observations about the passage that we just read. 
If you turn to page 21. Mm. Actually, before you look there, just, just look at page 20 mm. again. And look at verse 4. Look at the second line. It says, When the Lord God. So you notice that God now has this double name there, Lord God. And you look at the, at the Lord has a capital L-O-R-D. So back on page 21 now, we have the same verse here. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this special capital L-O-R-D is special because it is God's personal name. So just like, you know, Jen and I have our personal names. She's Jen, I'm Amos. Yeah, he's not A-U. Yeah. I'm not A-U too. Yeah, I don't call her just human or a woman. So the word God is the generic word for mighty one. But God himself has a specific name. Now, this capital L-O-R-D, in the Hebrew, remember we showed you a flash of Hebrew earlier. In the Hebrew, it will be spelled Y-H-W-H, or rather that's the English, anglicized version of Hebrew. It actually spells Y-H-W-H. And so that's the personal name of the Creator God. Now, the most common way to pronounce Y-H-W-H, and you notice that in original Hebrew, there are no vowels stated. I mean, they had vowels, but they didn't write it down. So from looking at the consonants, you would know what it would be. And in this case, we understand it to be pronounced Yahweh, or something very close to that, Yahweh. And it literally is a form of the word, I am. So the Creator God is saying that He is self-existent and always present. He is the one who always existed and will always exist. And he's the one who causes everything else to exist. So that's his name there in the Bible. But the, but the Jews, when they read out their Bible, it's like they felt there's not right to call God by his first name. <laughs> Just like how we don't call our parents by our first, their by first, their first name. name. <laughs> you're gonna, you're we're Asians, right? You're gonna slap. <laughs> So in the same idea, Jews don't like to call their God by his personal name. So every time they came to his name, the Y-H-W-H, they would say the Lord. Instead of respect, they'll say the Lord. So when English Bible translators translated the Bible, they followed that tradition and they spelled it Lord. But they wanted you, us, to know that this is not just a simple word Lord. But it's actually God's personal name, the YHWH. So you capitalize it, capital L, capital O, R, and D, to let us know that in the original Hebrew, we would expect to see YHWH. So this word Yahweh appears over 6,000 times in the Bible. So in the verse that we saw, just look up above again. It says, When the Lord God made the heavens and the, made the earth and the heavens, it can actually be properly read. When Yahweh made the earth and the heavens. That's how it would be in the original Hebrew. But out of respect, they would say the Lord. So it's not to use his name. But his name is all over uh, the Bible. So that's the first thing we want to just point out to you. When you see the word Lord God, particularly the capital L-R-D, know that in Hebrew, it's actually Yahweh. The second thing we can notice is, look at the bottom of page 21 there. This chart that we like to call the creator-creature distinction. What we have seen in the six days of creation 
is the infinite personal creator speaking creation into existence. He made all things. And you notice that he is separate from what he's made. From what he's made. Just like, for example, if we were to make a cake in the kitchen or bake some bread or, or even cook a pot of rice, we are not our pot of rice. We are not our cake. We are separate from what we make. That's what we call a creator-creature distinction. So when there was nothing, Yahweh was just there and he was fine. But then he created the universe and a universe that relies on him to exist, but God himself is not part of his creation. So we see the second level there. Once there was nothing, and then boom, he created. And then from that point onward, nature, man, the universe existed, but they are separate from their creator. So that's something we want to take the note of as well. Yeah, I see the question and we'll cover it right at this point, okay? The next, uh, after we finish this point. Now, we turn to page 22, we want to notice that mankind was designed in a very unique way, created in a very unique way. You know, when God created all the animals, He just spoke and they came into being. So we're going to read once again on page 22, Genesis 1, verse 20 to 25. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Then the evening passed, morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals discovering along the ground, and wild animals. And this is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. So you notice here what we underline, God said, so God literally spoke and boom, the entire sea creatures and, you know, came into being. He spoke, boom, all the land animals came into being all at the same time. And they were all mature, not just mature, but able to reproduce already. So he, he gave them the ability to reproduce already and he had programmed into them, you know, all these unique DNA and all that. But how did God create them? He just spoke. Now, when it came to mankind, though, God did not just speak and out pop the first man or out pop the first woman. That's not what happened. God did it very differently. You know, when he created man, he physically put together a physical body for mankind, for the first man, made out of the materials of the earth, so like the soil or the ground, and then God himself breathed his own breath as a spirit. He breathed his own breath into the man and the man became a living being. So it's totally different from how he created the animals. For the animals, he just spoke. So God gave mankind a spirit was, that was like his own, his own breath, and he came into life. So we're going to read bottom of page 22, Genesis 2 verse 7. 
Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So you see the different steps there. First, Yahweh formed the man from the dust of the ground. He took it from the earth, and then he breathed his own breath into the man's nose, and then the man became alive. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is, why? You know, why did God create mankind so differently? In fact, the Bible tells us something even more fascinating. If you turn with me to page 23, the Bible says that out of all the creatures that God created, only mankind, only man and woman, are made in God's own image. So we're going to read Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible says that in the image of God, he created both male and female. Now this phrase, right, in his own image, applies only to human beings. No one else, no sea creatures, no land creatures, nothing. No, no birds of the air. So the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean that humans are created in God's own image? Now take a look at the bottom diagram there. Earlier on, Amos was talking about the creator-creature distinction where God is at the first level, he's a creator, and then mankind is at the second level, the creation. Okay? Now what we want to see, what we want to see here is that God in sharing what in his when mankind is made in his image, he shares some of his attributes with mankind, but to a limited degree. So for instance, in this diagram on the left, you see God is infinite. Okay, God, God is infinite. Mankind, we are finite. Now, how does that play out? I'll give you some examples. For instance, the Bible, and as we go down uh, in the next few lessons, we'll see God is all loving. Well, mankind, you know, we have an ability to love, but our love has limits. Okay, if you're nasty to me for two whole years, I'm not quite sure I'm going to be loving towards you anymore. You know, or if you scam me, or if you cheat me, I'm not quite sure I'm going to love you. We are limited in our love. The Bible tells us that God is all-knowing. How We have an ability to know things and to learn things. But our ability to know and learn things is incomplete and imperfect. Okay, God is all-powerful. We have power. We have ability to create things and make things, bake a cake, paint a picture. But we are limited also because we lose, we run out of strength. We run out of energy at some point. We need to go to bed, you know. So while God is all-powerful, mankind, we can do some things, but we are limited. Now, God is holy. For us, you know, our conscience must be tied to the Creator God. So what does it mean that mankind are made in God's image? Well, then all these things, we share some of God's attributes. Now, what does it mean that we are made in God's image? Now, there are, God has moral standards. We, as human beings, have, to have an ability to understand moral standards. Now, animals don't. Animals don't have an ability to understand moral standards. They can be trained to know what is right and wrong. Please do not pee and poop in the house. They can be trained, but it's, an, it's a trained response. They have no sense of morality. Now, God is a God of feeling, and we have deep emotions that are very complex and wide-ranging as well. And on top of that, God made human beings with choice. 
Now you and I, we have been given choice by God. Some people like to call it free will. It is true. I can choose to lift up my paper down or drop it. You know, I can choose to leave the house. I can choose to stay. I can choose to marry this person. I can choose not to. All of us have will. Okay, and God gave us choices. God did not make human beings as robots. He could have done that. God could have done a computer program and say, okay, Jen, it will behave like this. She will always make the choice to eat cereal for breakfast. You know, he could have made Amos like that. Okay, Amos is going to be my laborer uh, person. He's always going to be digging holes. <laughs> he could have done that. But God did not create human beings as program robots. He created human beings to make choices. But he holds human beings accountable to, to him for the choices that they make. Now, here's a question. Why did God create and why did he create man? As we go down the Bible, we're going to see something fascinating. God created the world for mankind to enjoy. Okay, And a verse in the Bible actually says that. God created the entire world for mankind to enjoy. That leads to the second part of the question. Why did he create man? Okay, and the Bible tells us that God created mankind to have a personal relationship with him. Now, in next week's lesson, what we're going to see is that after God created the first man and woman, every day he would walk in the garden that he created with the, with the, for them and he would talk to them. He has a personal relationship with them. In fact, what we're going to see is that it was a very loving father and son relationship. I'll just mention this quickly now, but in next week's lesson, we'll see more of that. You know, today's lesson, we saw that after God created the light and the day, he called the light day, he called the darkness night, he created the sun and he called the sun, uh, uh, he called the light sun and he called the moon and stars. But after he finished this, right, he, he told mankind, okay, now your turn, you name things. It's almost like a father enjoying time with his son saying, hey, come, I teach you how to, you know, fix this little toy car. Now you fix it after that. Come, I teach you how to wash the big, the real car. Now you wash it after that. We're going to see that God created mankind for a personal loving relationship. And in fact, today we saw that God created a garden and he told him that that's, this is the garden of Eden. And he told mankind, okay, copy me, do the same thing. Look after the garden, but also, you know, make the, the world resourceful and useful and fruitful. So the kind of relationship that we see, God created man for a personal, loving, intimate relationship with him. Now, we can also kind of ask a question, like for instance, some people, you know, say, hey, why you marry that person? Ah? Companionship. <laughs> I, I enjoy the person's company. I, I want to be with that person. I like the person. So in some small degree, you can think about it this way, where God created man to have a relationship with mankind. And we're going to see more of that. We're going to see in the Bible that God has personal relationships with the people he created. And it's always an invitation. Let's be friends. Does that help for now? Okay, we'll see more next week. Okay, any other questions or comments? Anyone else? Okay, 
Now, there's more to know about how God made. And this is what we're going to end off with uh, in this section, page 24. Something called the divine institutions. Now, the, 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 the word divine means God-given and institutions. Now, earlier on, we saw that God is a God of order. Even how he organizes six days. The first three is create the environment first. He didn't create the animals first and then create the environment. He isn't a back-to-front kind of God. He was very orderly, very organized, and he made sure that the creatures that he created would have a comfortable and, and good place to live. You know, that's the kind of God that he is. But he also purposefully designed mankind physical features, minds, emotions, capacity for relationships. But he, he also did more. Mm. He built into mankind's nature certain patterns of behavior. Now, these patterns of behavior are the normal way in which God designed for people to live. And so these patterns of behavior are what will make mankind thrive and be happy and live well. So these we call the divine institutions because these are God's idea of how mankind should live. So we see the first diagram there. I see a little man on a blueprint. Divine institutions, think of it as the patterns of normal behavior built into human nature. So what are these? There are three we want to talk about this evening. So look at the second diagram on page 24. So at the base of the diagram is man. And built into man are three divine institutions. The first one known as responsible dominion, which we'll explain in a minute. Built on top of that is the second one called marriage. And the third one on top of that is called family. So these three working together will help mankind and man's society function well and thrive. So let's go into each of these three divine institutions to see more details. So on page 25, let's look at the first one here, known as responsible dominion. We're going to see two sets of verses from Genesis. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 verse 27 to 28. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Ah, so we see some interesting things here. He didn't just make man and just plop him there and yeah, okay, you know, do whatever you want. But what we do see is very purposeful. He designed these things into man. He were the man and the woman were instructed to multiply, to fill the earth, that means to make more humans, and then to govern it. So they were supposed to look after it, tend over it, watch over it. So man, in other words, was given the responsibility of looking after the rest of nature that God had created. Now, this taking care of the earth is not just based on their own ideas. Just like our manager says, okay, here's your job, now go do it. And then leaves us completely without instruction. That will not be a great manager. He'll tell you, okay, this is what success looks like. These are the processes. These are your tools here, your resources. Here's your budget. This is your crew and so on and so forth. So man was supposed to look to God for guidance on how to look after nature well. Mankind was supposed to develop 
the close relationship with their Creator, and God will guide them. So look at the middle diagram there, page 25. You can think of it in this way, the hierarchy. There is the Creator God who created man and nature. So He's like the big boss. And then representing Him, that's why mankind is said to be made in His image. As His representatives, we have mankind, the small boss or the underlord. And their job is to look after nature and animals. So part of the role was to multiply. In other words, make more images of God, if you will. They have children that would then spread out over the earth and also look after other parts of it because it's a big planet. So in this way, together, they would take care of the earth. So that is a quick summary of responsible dominion. So God actually created mankind you know, for joyful work. God himself, in the first six days of creation, he's a laborer. He himself was working. And he created mankind to thrive and enjoy and get satisfaction out of work. So that's the first one. Now, if you turn with me to page 28, the second one is, second divine institution is marriage. So we're going to read this part again, Genesis 2. Genesis 2 verse 18 and onwards. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But there was still no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone for my bone and flesh for my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. So what we see here is that God brought all the wild animals to walk in front of the man, and he got them to walk in front of the man in pairs. So at this stage, there's only, he only had created the man. So as the man saw all these pairs going by, it's like, oh, something wrong here. How come everybody has a pair? You know, but for him, he was alone. So God wanted him to recognize, okay, there's something different here. They all have pairs. And so after he recognized that, God caused him to go into a deep sleep. And then out of his sight, God made one helper for him that is just right. So now God could have made anything else. God could have made an animal. God could have made a bird. God could have made a fish or sea creature. God could have made anything else. But he chose, God chose to make a woman. And he said, this one is just right, just right for you. And so when God created the woman, you know, notice that he didn't create a woman out of the ground. No, he took, the, he took a part of the man and out of his sight, not his head, not his foot, but out of his sight. And God was saying something through that as well. Woman is man's equal. Okay, a woman is man's equal. But equal a helper to the man. So both of them are supposed to, in partnership, look after the whole world together because it's a big job. It's a big earth. 
But not just that, he purposely, purposefully built women to complement men. Now, how so? Because man cannot procreate by himself. But with women, both physically built differently, they can procreate. And so that's how God made a woman just right for them, for men. And so man and woman is supposed to be a team and they're supposed to care and rule over creation together. So if you turn to page 27, you know, one of the things, marriage. This was the first marriage in all creation. The first man and the first woman got married. So marriage is actually God's idea. He was the... Uh, if I were to put it this way, he was the matchmaker. Okay? He gave woman to man and say here. And he was so delighted, the man was so delighted that he called her woman. Mm. He says, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. So if you take a look at page 26, you know, even the way that is formatted in verse 23, it appears that he either said it in poetic form or he might have even sung a song to say how delighted he was. Mm. At this woman. Now, in English, we say, you can see, she will be called woman because she was taken from man. So there's a bit of a rhyme there. And you know what's a fascinating thing? This is English, obviously. In the original Hebrew, it also rhymes. Because in the Hebrew, it says, she will be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. So Ish is the Hebrew word for man. Isha is the Hebrew word for woman. It also rhymes in Hebrew, which is fascinating. Okay, let's take a look at page 27 on top now. So that's the second divine institution. So marriage is not a man-made idea. Marriage is God's idea. And God gave man a woman because man cannot have children by himself. Okay, and God wanted man and woman to... Take, take, take care of the earth together, not just two of them, but they, he wanted them to have a family. So that leads us to the third divine institution, the family. So God gave mankind the ability to reproduce more images of God, okay, to fill the earth. So these are the first three divine institutions. Take a look at the bottom diagram. So there's man, and God gave man responsible dominion. They're supposed to be responsible in taking care of the earth. You know, and then God gave mankind marriage, and then God gave mankind family. Now, it's called the divine institutions because all these are God's idea. This is not something that humans, you know, through the course of history decided, no, I think that this is a good idea. No, that's not it. God himself did that. Now, if you turn with us to page 28. Hmm. Now, interestingly, the family unit, it's the smallest unit in society, in human society, and God designed it such that within families is when the little people, the children will be trained to know how to live well, to know right from wrong before they are grown up into adults and then kind of released into society. So this is how God designed it. If you look at the flow chart there, individuals making responsible decisions, good responsible decisions, leads to strong marriages where two people are working hard to have a good relationship together and strong marriages will lead to strong families and strong families where children are brought up knowing right from wrong knowing how to be productive knowing how to be creative knowing how to respect others and all that strong families will then lead to strong well-functioning societies so that's how god designed now 
we recognize obviously not every person will be able to get into a marriage or be able to have children. We're not talking about in the individual level. We're talking on a society level. God designed the man and woman to come together in the marriage to be able to reproduce and then build more people who will then take care of the earth. So that was how God designed it to work. Now, with today's lesson, we end off by reading this. So how did God end off his creation? He said that was very good. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. So one of the things, uh, earlier on we had the question, are the six days meant to be taken literally? We'll see that every single passage with regards to the six days of creation ends like this. Take a look at verse 31. In this, in this final day of creation, God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good, and evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. You will notice that every single day ends with an evening passed and morning came. God wants us to know that it's a literal 24-hour day, evening and morning. Okay, now, you and I today, you know, our day starts at midnight and it ends at midnight, right? But for the Jews, their day starts in the evening and ends in the next evening. So when evening passed and morning came, that really was one day, counted as one day. Now, so at the end of creation, you know, God said it was very good. Now, you and I, right, we look around at the earth today and say it's not very good. It's really not very good. What happened? You know, the, the earth that we are now living in, you know, is full of sicknesses. We just went through a pandemic. Uh, every day we read in the papers, you know, accidents or disasters or crimes. There are earthquakes. Turkey and Syria had an earthquake. You know, what happened? Now, we're going to study that in next week's lesson. Okay, now, any questions on tonight's lesson? Was it okay? Does it make sense? Okay, is the pace okay? Not too fast, is it? <laughs> okay, for those of you who can't see your face, right? Just give us some sign, okay? To, <laughs> so that we know you're okay. <laughs> okay, great, thanks. Okay, so this is kind of the pace that we're going to be going through uh, the lessons. You know, you can always ask questions in the middle and all that. And what you will notice at the end of every lesson, on the bottom of page 28, for instance, we give you a Bible reading for review. So if those of you who want to just review the lesson again, you can read uh, this in a Bible passage. Um, I think we had sent out uh, access to an online Bible, did we not? Uh, we didn't, is it? No, okay, so what we'll do after tonight's lesson is we'll just send you, if for those of you who may not have your own Bibles, we'll just send you a link to an online Bible. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, Chris great. is showing us. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can read it there. You can also just review the passages in your notes. Okay, so one thing that we want to mention is that we do want to be quite uh, diligent in helping you go through the main content of the Bible. So you might find that each lesson, wow, we go through quite a lot, okay, especially when we go down. So feel free to review your lessons uh, after that and feel free to contact us anytime. 
you may have a question or some thoughts that you may have uh, thought up after the lesson, that's really okay. We are available for you anytime in any form of communication that you prefer. There is one other thing we want to say. Now, if you notice that page 29, there's a box. Now, every lesson, we will have a box, which kind of kind of like a, ask a question. Now, not everybody may be interested in the content of the box, so we leave it to you for your own reading. But for those of you who, who say, hey, can you go through the content of the box with me? Yeah, we're happy to. We're happy to do it either after class or at any time you want. So we will always be the last people to log out of class, okay? So in case one of you want to stay back, we're always here. And, uh, and so we will just to let you know, we will not cover the box content in class. In class. Yeah. But please, but feel, please free feel free to read through it. And then you have comments on it, just email or message us about it. So every end of the session has a box. And it's a, a question that some people have. And so we provide some additional information yeah. to just help the thinking along. And if you don't have that question and you don't care to read it, that's also fine. That's also fine. That's perfectly fine. Mm. Okay, any questions about how we run the classes or any protests or complaints? <laughs> uh, protest department is open. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, in that case, we do try and start all our lessons on time. So thank you so much today for coming in on time, you know, because we do want to respect your time and uh, we try and finish at 9.30 so you can actually get some rest in the night as well. Okay, uh, but feel free to uh, ask us anything, anytime. But we will also close uh, our time with a word of prayer. And so we invite you to pray with us now. Dear God, thank you for the time that we could spend together tonight. Please give good sleep and rest to everyone here. And we look forward to moving on to the next session next week to see what happened to the perfect world that you had created. Thank you. Amen. 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 Okay. okay. So good to see all of you. Nice and to meet you all. Nice to meet some of you and meeting you for the first time. Okay, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Okay. Good night. Good night. Bye. Thanks. Thanks, Jen and Amos. Bye. Bye. Welcome. Bye. Welcome. Bye. 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 Bye.